0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and today I have the privilege of continuing the series of messages on the book of Ecclesiastes, today looking at chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 7, verse 29. Let's get started. I do hope y'all to lunch. We have a lot of stuff to go over this morning, um, so if you would uh, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter five for starters. Again, the the uh, we've been over this before, but the general consensus is that ecclesiastes was written most likely written by solomon and uh that last that last song you know i'd rather have jesus than be king of a vast domain solomon i i read somewhere solomon's net worth they, at the uh apex of his career was several trillion dollars. So just keep that in mind as we go. There's a, a story told about a businessman who went on a holiday to a South Seas island. And early one morning he happened to see a fisherman row his small boat into the wharf. And notice that he had caught several large fish. So the businessman asked him, how long did it take you to catch those fish? The response was, well, not very long. So why don't you stay out longer and catch more fish? Well, why? These fish will feed my family. Well, what do you do with the rest of the day? Well, after I get back from fishing, I play with my kids. Then in the afternoon, I have a nap with my wife, and in the evening we go into the village and where we we sing and dance and have a good time with our friends and enjoy a good meal. Then the next day we do the same thing. Why? Well, if you stayed out longer and caught more fish, you could eventually you could sell that the extra fish and eventually buy a bigger boat and. Um, then hire some of your friends to fish with you. And then what? Well, you could eventually start a fish processing plant in the city and become rich. And then what? Well, you could build the business up and maybe even make it a public corporation selling stock in the stock market. And then what would I do? Well, you could become very rich. And then sell your shares in the corporation, retire to a small seaside village and where you could fish a little, play with your grandkids, have an afternoon nap, and every evening uh, sing and dance and relax and enjoy a good meal with your friends. I'm puzzled, the fisherman asked, isn't that what I'm already doing? <laughs> the temptation of wealth. So let's read what Solomon had to say here. Ephesians five, and we'll begin reading verse eight. Sorry, Ecclesiastes. What am I saying? Um, If you see in the province, in a province, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, Yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So this first half of our scripture portion is in the form of a the technical term is a chiasm. Uh, It's a literary device designed to help us to remember the most important point. So the passage goes like this. There's There's money's inability. There's money's ability there's money's purpose there's money's ability and money's inability okay you get that chiasm it's kind of like an x so we we'll look at money's inability in um in the scripture here Solomon speaks of at least two things that money cannot buy. The first is justice. In the first few verses, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. I like the NIV translation here. Because it brings out some of the nuances. The new NIV says one official is eyed by a higher one. The point is that there is corruption, not only in every human heart, but also and inevitably so in every human institution. So when we notice injustice and oppression, We should not be amazed. We should do everything in our power to correct it. But we should recognize that corruption is the inevitable result of our human fallenness. The result of believing the lie that we can be as God. But surely, you might say, if there were sufficient resources given to law enforcement and and the, the courts and so on, that would take care of the issues. No? But I mean, just look around. How could that possibly be when police forces, the very uh, bodies charged with the protection of the public, when several police forces in Canada today are being accused of mishandling evidence, of not caring for the poor, of causing needless pain and hardship, and of racial profiling. The problem is that despite the resources at its disposal, there will always be distrust and cover-up within human institutions and government institutions as well. Some officials protect others. Or they are envious and suspicious of others. Frankly, it's a big mess. And the vulnerable are caught in the crossfire. And money simply cannot solve the problem. Ugh. Solomon gives us a hint about a solution to the problem. In verse 9. This is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. The solution is not money, but righteousness. If leaders are committed to what will actually benefit the, the city, the province, the country, as Solomon put it, cultivated fields, corruption will be minimized. You won't illuminate it, but at least it will be under control. If leaders stop eyeing each other, stop being suspicious of each other, stop being and, and instead pursue what is best for the citizenship, justice will begin to prevail. The solution so the problem of injustice has little to do with money. Because in itself, money cannot solve the problem. And Solomon argues also that um, in, in verses 10 through 12 in chapter 5 and then in, uh, in chapter 6 as well no amount of money can bring satisfaction. Typically, the more we have, the more we want. Those who love money may experience a short-lived satisfaction when they reach a specific goal, but soon find themselves reaching for more. Money love is a God that keeps us wanting more. And the surest sign that you are not a lover of money is that you're satisfied with what you have. The goal is to be able to say with Paul, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Money can't offer satisfaction because it always invites new problems. Um, now, a few of us will approach Solomon's uh, wealth, but what he discovered was the more he had, the more people who sat at his table. Um, and, you know, think about, you know, I don't know if you have any friends, but you've heard of people who um, have come into sudden wealth, such as by a lottery winning. Suddenly they have more friends and relatives than they can count. And most of those people, most of the people who receive uh, sudden wealth like that, uh, who do not get or do not follow sound financial advice, find themselves reduced to poverty in short order. Not only that, money robs the bearer of sleep. Solomon put it this way, sweet Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. When was the last time you worried about money? How did you sleep? How did the lack of sleep help you the next day? Money invites worry which robs us of sleep, even if all our earthly needs are met. Truly, as Solomon put it, better is the, is the sight of the eyes than the wandering appetite. In other words, enjoy what you have now. So what then can money do? Continuing in uh, chapter 5, beginning at 13 and again in in the first few verses of chapter 6. Solomon points to an example of of wasted wealth to make the point that money's real ability is the ability to cause pain. Rather than being generous with the wealth, uh, a particular man hoarded his riches. At some point he entered a bad venture. Perhaps he had sought financial advice, but had ultimately gone against it, or perhaps it was poor advice he received. Either way, he invested in a scheme where he ought not to have invested and in the end lost all his wealth. This left him unable to provide for his family. He went to the grave as empty handed as he had come into the world. All the money he had earned during his productive working years meant nothing. His wealth offered him nothing of substance and brought only pain. You may remember that Jesus told a story along the same lines. In Luke 12, Jesus told a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And all this leads up to the real purpose of financial wealth. Verse 18 and following. Behold, I have seen what I have seen to be good and fitting Did you notice the contrast in the language Solomon used? Earlier, he was commenting on the grievous evils that he had seen under the sun. And now he's commenting on what he has seen to be good and fitting. And the difference is God. In these three verses, God is mentioned four times. So what he's saying is that the person who finds his satisfaction in God and in the things that, that God has given him, whether little or much, that is the person who is living with true wisdom. If you trust, if your trust is in money itself, you're living foolishly. If your trust is in the God who gives you money and all other good gifts, you're living wisely. In fact, the one who learns to live daily in God's presence will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Those who learn to rejoice in God and in his good gifts in the present will find such joy in God that the troubles of life begin to seem insignificant in the bigger scheme of things. Centuries after Solomon, Paul wrote this to his friend and protege, Timothy. And it's something of a commentary on this passage. 1 Timothy 6, beginning at verse 6. Paul wrote, There is great gain in godliness and contentment. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these we will be content. And those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Only as we find our satisfaction in the living God can we find those things that we so yearn for. Money can't produce justice, but God provided perfect justice in Jesus Christ. On the cross, Christ was punished for the sins of his people so that perfect justice could be exercised. And because perfect justice has been exercised in him, the grace of forgiveness is available to all repentant sinners. Justice, true eternal justice, can only be realized in Jesus Christ. And likewise, satisfaction can only be found in Him. Augustine famously said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart." is restless until it finds its rest in you. God in Christ Jesus offers us the satisfaction that we can never find in money. If we look to Him for satisfaction, the sorrows of this life will fade into insignificance as God fills our hearts with eternal joy. And isn't this how Jesus lived, in fact? He didn't spend his time on earth figuring out how to hoard for retirement. He had nowhere to lay his head, but he trusted his father, our father, to meet his daily needs. And he learned to find his joy in daily obedience. The result was that he was a man who was occupied with joy in his heart, even though he was a man of sorrows. Christ was willing to forsake the riches of heaven to become poor on our behalf in order to accomplish what the Father had called Him to do. We should be thankful for the good gifts that God has given us. But at the same time, we have to hold them with open hands. Be ready to share them with others for the sake of Loving obedience of living like our Lord. That's the path to true joy. May we all find that joy in Christ Jesus. The next chapter of Ecclesiastes extends what Solomon has been saying regarding money um, and prosperity. Ah, uh, so Chapter Seven and Verse One, A good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is Better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit, is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In many of these couplets, Solomon is reminding us to look at life in the light of eternity. And he counsels us to face our mortality squarely. This life is not all there is. That's why he says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Um, and sorrow is better than laughter. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. Think about it. If you knew you only had one more day to live. If, for example, you knew with a certainty that tomorrow, at about this time, you would suffer a fatal heart attack. Or that you would be killed in a hit-and-run accident as you cross the street. What would you be doing right now? I Pray that you would be on your face before God, the Judge, seeking His forgiving grace in Christ Jesus and then having been reconciled to Him that you would do everything in your power to bring as many people as possible into the presence of the Redeemer. So, Please don't dismiss this. Dismiss what I'm saying as merely the raving of an old man. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, Solomon said. The song of fools may be more pleasant to the ear, but that does not convey truth. And it will not bring you to the security of the grace of God. Chapter 7 and verse 15. In my life, my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. I don't know about you, but this passage caused some Struggle. What does it mean to be overly righteous? I had to do some digging. And I found that most commentators suggest that this is the same kind of uh, fanaticism that resulted in the kind of self-righteousness of Pharisaism that Jesus warned us against. And being too wise is an expression of pride. You know, the kind of, can I help it if I'm right? The kind of, you know, that simply won't engage in civil discussion. Like the Sadducees that Jesus debated. And unfortunately, like many of our politicians. On the other side of the equation, Solomon warned us against being overly wicked. Let's face it. There are some people who, for whatever reason, will not submit to the Lord Jesus. For them, the only constraint on their behavior or their misbehavior is the law of the land but that level of wickedness might well cut us off from even hearing the gospel. So the proper response is to avoid those extremes and to embrace instead the extreme of being totally sold out to the Lord Jesus. He alone, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can work in us to curb both the folly of self-righteousness and of blatant sin. Verse seventeen, verse 19. Sorry. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and To know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God hates her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. For all his searching for wisdom, Solomon confesses that being wise had eluded him. And among those who were around him, Whether his advisors or his wives or his harem, there was not one person he would dare to call wise. He did get a couple of things right in spite of all. For example, he says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Possibly this is one of the things that his father David had taught him. In Psalm 14.3, David says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And Solomon's conclusion is a reflection of the story of our creation and fall. Verse 29. See, This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In Genesis 1, as God completed His creation, He looked at it and saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Then came Genesis 3 where both Eve and Adam rebelled against the command of God and chose to set themselves up as gods, as those in control of their own destinies. In effect, they told God, Don't tell me what to do or what not to do. I will choose for myself. And the result was, as Paul in Romans 3 reminds us all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. It's true. We've sought out many schemes. but Our God is incredibly gracious. And He so longs for a loving relationship with each of us that He has already done everything to take care of our innate sinfulness. And today, he's waiting with open arms to receive you as his prodigal child. All we need to do is surrender to his love. Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for that incredible grace. That grace that we could never have expected. Never have anticipated. Never have qualified for. But you have done it all in Jesus. And we want to praise you for that. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that you have given to us. The privilege of your word. The privilege of starting afresh right now to focus on you on your will and purpose for our lives father that we might be your agents in this troubled world that by your grace we might be we might be privileged to bring others to yourself, that they too might know this measureless, incredible love and grace that you have poured into our lives by Christ Jesus. And we give you our praise in His name. Amen. Bruce,
1: can you close this in prayer? Father, we thank you for the commandment that says, I am your God that brought you out of Egypt. There will be no other gods before me. We thank you for the reminder this morning of what it is to place other things and idols before you. The foolishness, the meaninglessness of it, the chasten of the wind, the pursuing after things that have no value. Lord, we just pray today you'd help us, perhaps in our stubbornness, perhaps in our ignorance, perhaps in our bliss of being in a place where we chase after things other than you. Bring wisdom to our minds and our hearts today, Lord. Help us to realize the the beauty and the fruits and the wisdom of the words that were shared this morning. We thank you for them. We thank you for people such as Solomon who are honest and transparent in their folly, Lord, of living a life that continued to heap up higher and higher amounts of things. Lord, we just humble ourselves before you and we wish to serve you and you alone. We go away, Lord, with heaviness of heart, Lord, thinking how blessed we are and how much stuff we have. Lord, remind us who we are. We are nothing but children redeemed by the person and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's all we are in you, Lord. Thank you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening.